a little bit, pray along with me when the time comes, that God would meet with us and enable us to fellowship with him this morning through his word. That, these, this, that the foolishness of preaching, think about a sinner as I am coming up and expounding God's word, how could that do anything for us? It only comes as the Holy Spirit works. So pray along together with me that the Holy Spirit would indeed work by and with his word this morning in everyone's life to mold and shape us. Ruth 1, verses 6 through 21 will be the text that I read this morning. This is a two-parter. We'll come back to this next week as well. Uh, But for this morning, um, we're going to look at 6 through 21, at least most of it. With your Bibles open, let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of our King. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on with her to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in the womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for uh, for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they once again lifted up their voices and wept. And Oprah, I'm sorry, Oprah, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Marah. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the privilege that you've given us now to come to this passage of Scripture, which you wrote and gave to your people to encourage And strengthen them during times of trial and difficulty. During times of tempering 
and hardship. God, I pray that this passage would be a source of encouragement to us this morning, but that only comes, Holy Spirit, as you come. So condescend, O Spirit of God, and enable your people. Open our eyes. Take the word of the Spirit and cut deep within our lives, deep within our hearts, dividing both soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and reshape and rebuild us into the image of Jesus Christ. God, we, we, we lay our hearts before you this day. Feed them, grow them according to your will and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thus far in this book, we have seen that this book was written, the contents of this book took place during the era of the Judges. We see that in the very first verse. Now, when you read the book of Judges, those of you who have and those of you who are familiar with it, you know that a prevailing theme is, although they didn't say it, but um, the prevailing theme is there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so we look at this era and we go, man, this is a time when they were kingless. When they were vulnerable and when, when havoc broke out, when, when any foreign nation with any kind of a, a whim, on a whim, came on through, they just persecuted and attacked, raped, pillaged, burned, and maimed God's people. It was this chaotic time. That's what Judges is. And yet, brothers and sisters, that's a misreading of that book. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7 is quite explicit. There was and is a king in Israel. And that king was none other than Yahweh, God himself. And as God, in his his care for his people, tempers and shapes, the book of Judges is a a glimpse um, that we get. We read Joshua and we go, there's this conquest. They take over the promised land. Judges is God managing his people. Tending his people, molding his people, shaping his people during this time. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now you might respond to it saying, look, anyone can say, I'm sorry, anyone can hurt you and say, I'm doing that because I love you. That's true in the horizontal, but not in the vertical, brothers and sisters, not with God. God disciplines us because he loves us. And if you need any other proof than this, this is it. Does God the Father love God the Son? Does God the Son love God the Father? Does God the Son do anything to incur the wrath, indignation, or anger of God the Father? Absolutely no. To all, right? God does love Jesus Christ. But listen to how God raised his son, Jesus Christ, in this era, in this age. Hebrews 5, I referenced it last time. Although Jesus was a son of God, the only begotten, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been matured, He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Brothers and sisters, God's way of shaping and molding and maturing his very only begotten son was through the fiery flames of discipline, affliction. And we, and we know the passage in Matthew chapter 10, which says, Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he becomes his teacher. In other words, as the teacher goes, so go his people. If Jesus Christ was tempered and matured through the fiery flames of affliction, you know 
that you and I as his followers are also going to be tempered and matured through the fiery flames of affliction. Why? Because God loves us. I'm going to uh, continue on in the problem with pain. I didn't quote this last week. C.S. Lewis, in this context, wrote, The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble to so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. Brothers and sisters, we are not the center of God's plan. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created, they, they are and were a created. Revelation 4.11. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that purpose, but that God may love us. Did you get that? God made you to love you. That he may become, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. And thus, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are in our sin and imperfection. To ask that God to, to love us and ignore our imperfection is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. His lust, um, um, and become, and, and because he already loves us, um, he must labor to make us, in every facet of, of our being, lovable. In other words, what he's saying is, brothers and sisters, a loving God is not a God who's kind. Remember the quote from last week? Who really doesn't care about your, whether or not it's good or bad for you. He just doesn't want you to, to suffer. That's our view of God, this Santa Claus God who sits up in heaven and just wants to just wink at all of what we, we do, hoping that a good time is had by all. Lewis says that is not love. Love will not allow the objects of love to remain imperfect. And so what does God do? He, he, he's going to make us perfect. How does he do that? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, by discipline. Now, it's not fun. We know that. But what's the result? What is the result of discipline? What is the result every time God raised up a judge in Judges? What was the result? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. We all could attest to that. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, just like at the time of the judges, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know the result of discipline is? It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Yet brothers and sisters, like Elimelech and Naomi, we don't want pain. Hebrews 12, all discipline for the moment is not to be joyful but sorrowful. We don't want that. So what do we do? Like them, we flee. God is disciplining his people in Judges um, and Elimelech and Naomi sitting under that discipline from a loving God whose purpose is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. They said, no, sir, we're getting out of here. So they fled the discipline of the Lord. And in fleeing, they short-circuited what God had intended for them. They went rather to, of all places, the land of Moab, a land cursed by God, to get away from any, hey, any harbor is a good harbor in the middle of a storm, right? They fled to Moab to get away from the disciplining hand of the Lord. You've got to see that. 
And that was verses 1 through 5. That was last week. This week, 6 through 21, details the consequence of that decision in the life of Naomi. Naomi's not the hero of this book. Boaz is not the hero. Ruth is not the hero. God is. We know that. But in chapter 1, the focus, the lens, the camera is on Naomi. And 6 through 21 details the consequence of what happened, the, the fruit that came from Elimelech and Naomi fleeing from the disciplining hand of the Lord. Notice with me the first consequence, and that is the sweetness of discipline was missed. Notice with me verse 6. Speaking of Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Now, again, we've looked at the cycle of the judges. I'm not going to repeat it here. You've got a graphic there I do want you to look at. Where, based on this verse, where were God's people living in Palestine at in regards to this cycle of discipline? Where, where, where were they in verse 6? Number 5. Okay, number 5. The, the God's people were rejoicing. They were enjoying the peaceful fruit of of righteousness. So God's people, those who stayed, had a hard time. It's not easy. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. They had a hard time. But do you know what that hard time produced in them? Anytime you have conflict, good conflict, healthy conflict in relationships, which we do with God, that's what sanctification is all about. God conflicting with us to mold and shape us to be the people God wants us to be. If we go through conflict and not avoid it, what happens? Well, you know on a horizontal level, if you go through conflict in a marriage or with your sibling, and it's a healthy conflict, not one that tears down, but actually, you know, we're conflicting, we explain it, we talk. At the end, there's a bond there. There's a closeness there. That's what God's people in Palestine were enjoying. Such a contrast to Naomi. They're enjoying the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, what is that peaceful fruit? Do you know what the end of God's disciplining hand is? You might think that I'd be more moral. No. What is the end of God's disciplining grace? It's that you and I might enjoy Christ more. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. Paul wrote, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul said, nothing in this world compares with knowing Christ, fellowshipping with Christ, enjoying Christ. That's what I'm about. What brought him to that point? That's quite a bold statement. What brought him there? Well, a couple years before that, 2 Corinthians 12, he went to the Lord because God's hand of discipline was heavy upon him. There was a thorn in his flesh. And he struggled with that thorn. He wondering, God, why would you do this? So concerning this thorn, 2 Corinthians 12, 8, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. God, please take away the pain. Take away the sorrow. Take away the suffering. This is hard here. This is Paul. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. What is the grace of God? Titus 2, 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. What is the grace of God? Jesus Christ. Christ is sufficient for you, Paul. If your hardship, if this thorn brings you to the point where you go, man, horizontally, there's nothing in this world for me. All that I've got here is, is, is pain, uh, suffering. But what I've got with God is Christ. And that was Paul. 
Paul came to the point in his walk through the sufferings that he had where he valued Christ, being satisfied in Christ, knowing the sufficiency of of Christ. I don't need anymore. I don't need money. I don't need praise. I don't need glory. I don't need people following, you know, after me saying the voice of a God and not of a man. I don't need any of that stuff. All I need is a love relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the end of discipline, brothers and sisters. Psalm 73, I give you verse after verse after verse. Psalm 73, I referenced this last week. Asaph going through trial, difficulty, because he saw it looked as if God didn't care about him and about his people. It looked like God cared more for the wealthy. Why? Well, because, brothers and sisters, you don't, you don't fatten sheep. You fatten pigs for slaughter, right? There, God, God is, um, is not disciplining and shaping non-believers. He's molding and shaping his people because we're his sheep. And so Asaph, when he realized that, what did he say? Whom have I in heaven besides thee, and nothing on earth I desire? You are my, are my heart's desire, God. That's what I'm after. Brothers and sisters, that's the point of discipline. Now, when we read here in Romans, 1, or Romans Ruth 1, 6, that she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the land of Moab, for she had heard that the, um, in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. Look at that word. Let's define this word. Uh, visited. Now I got a couple quotes about the thorn and William Mason that supports what I was just saying. The end of discipline is to behold and enjoy Christ. Read those poems. I'm not going to read them now. Okay. Um, but what does visited mean? She heard God visits people. That is big biblical language. That's covenant language. Covenant language. Big word. Um, but that's what it is. It is. Um, so when you enter, when a person enters a relationship with God, it's a covenant relationship where God is the Lord and we are a vassal people whom God has promised to protect and on and on and on, right? You know what? Well, in that relationship in the ancient world, when a, when, a relation, when a covenant relationship was made between a strong kingdom and a weaker kingdom, occasionally the Lord, via an ambassador, whatever, or the Lord himself, the king, would visit that land. And that visit would result in one of two things. It would result in either discipline, condemnation, if you will. Not, I don't want you to associate discipline with condemnation. It would result in condemnation. Uh, take out uh, discipline. It would result in condemnation, judgment, or it would result in great blessing. Okay? This is talking about the covenant visitation of blessing. Let me define it for you. A visitation of blessing is a redemptive act of condescension in which the Lord in times of sorrow, difficulty, and sadness draws near to his people to bless them with himself. That's a, that's a, a visitation of blessing. It's God drawing near to his struggling, hurting people to bless them with himself. Listen to some passages. Get a feel for how this word is. Jeremiah 27, 22, speaking of the people of God, God said, they shall be carried to Babylon and they shall be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. What would be the result? Then I will bring them back and restore them. God's visitation in, in the lives of God's people is unto their restoration. Always is. Our growth in grace that we might behold and enjoy and love Jesus Christ all the more. Luke 1, the birth of the son of his son, John, um, Zacharias wrote, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, what would be the result? To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our f- 
feet in the path of peace. What does God visiting us do? It, it, it shines a light on our lives. It brings us into restoration. Notice Psalm 106, the psalmist cried, Remember, O Lord, in thy favor toward thy people, visit me with thy, with thy salvation. What is God's visitation? It's his saving grace that comes and sanctifies us and grows us and brings us to the point where we are restored fully in Christ. Zechariah 10, for the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. That's restoration. That, brothers and sisters, all of that is what was going on in Judges when Naomi and Elimelech fled to Moab. So what was going on in the promised land in Judah? Well, some suffering at first. But it gave way to this incredible time where God visited his people and he blessed them with food. But that wasn't the, the, subs, the, the substance of God's visitation. That was the result. God's visitation ultimately was blessing them with himself that they came to a point where they were satisfied in Christ. Their, their longing in this world was finally satisfied and it was directed and pointed in none other than the person of Jesus Christ himself. That's what's going on in this passage. When we read in Romans 1, that's what's going on historically in Palestine. When we read in Ruth 1, sorry, I keep on seeing the R and saying Romans. When we read in Ruth 1, verse 6, then she arose and her daughters. Brothers and sisters, Naomi was there 11 years. 11 years. And during that time, God's people suffered for a little bit. All discipline for the moment is not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet being trained by it, do you know what it produced for all of God's people? Rejoicing, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What a contrast to Naomi. Naomi at this time, what is she? Well, as you've read it, she's, a, uh, she's just this empty vessel. She's this... Um, uh, um, you know, person who is, who's been eviscerated. You flee God's discipline. You, you, you flee God's disciplining grace. And the result will always be you're going to short circuit the, the, the cycle. And rather than when everyone else are rejoicing and praising God and thanking the Lord for Jesus Christ and bowing before him and worshiping him, rather than that, you will be cold, you will be, you will be distant, you'll, be, you'll feel eviscerated, you'll be empty. That's the point. Notice the impact that... Um, fleeing from the disciplining hand of the Lord brought in Naomi's life. That's the point of this chapter, the rest of this chapter. It eviscerated her. She's a broken vessel before God. How sad. Brothers and sisters, let me exhort you. Trial and difficulty come. Dark day comes to our lives. Let me exhort you this week. Take every day and live it before the face of God. Cormdale. God, wake up, Lord, give me the grace to live before you this day. And in so doing, may God give you and I the grace to take everything that happens to us this week from the hand of a loving God. Not from the hand of this angry God up there wanting to get us. That is not how God has presented his scripture. God disciplined his son because he loved him. 
God's going to bring darkness into your life because he loves you. And in that darkness, you and I, when you and I simply live horizontally, we take it from, we go, good night, because we're performance babies. We go, God, what's your problem? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you so mean? Because we're thinking horizontally. So what do we do? We flee. And in fleeing, we miss out on the, on the disciplining fruit, the fruit of discipline, which is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That was Naomi. How sad. I look upon this woman here and I go, isn't that sad? Had, they, had Elimelech and Naomi stayed, you know what they'd be doing at that moment right there? They'd be, they'd be praising God. They'd be thanking the Lord. Their hearts would be filled, not with food, but with Jesus Christ. But instead, Naomi, in the attempt to fill her belly, because she valued a full belly over a full soul, fled from the presence of the Lord, cursed, no doubt, many times, as we'll see next week, cursed God. You go, How, what brought her to this? God's, all of her... All of her friends and family back in Bethlehem are just rejoicing over God, not her. That's what happens when you and I flee from the disciplining hand of the Lord. When you and I accidentally, maybe, not even on purpose, we take bad not from the hand of the Lord. We take it from the world in which we live and it, it comes and presses upon us like a huge tidal wave. And we sit there and we become obsessed just like Martha with the horizontal, God, what are you doing Brothers and sisters, don't flee it. Take it from the hand of the Lord and in the process say, God, open my eyes that I might see Christ in the storm. And in seeing Christ, to embrace him and love him and walk away counting myself blessed because I was able to fellowship with Christ in the the valley of the shadow of, of death. All right, that's the first. Would you notice the second consequence? There's three. We'll get to the third next time. The second one, the inability to behold God's blessing. A blindness comes over us. When you and I flee from the discipline of the Lord, we we, we become blind. Notice verse 7. So she departed from the place where she was and her daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to the return to the land of Judah. Now she began this arduous journey. 4,500 feet above sea level is Moab. Valley, the River Jordan, 200 feet below sea level, Dead Sea. So she went, she and her two daughters-in-laws went down 40 or 4,700 feet. And then Bethlehem is 3,750 feet above sea level. So another 3,900, you've got to add the two because they're below, 50 feet. She is, she is over 50 the mile, the trip is 75 miles long. And it's all mountainous journey. How long would it take a 50 plus year old woman who's not in shape to be hiking up those mountains to take that journey? Some say, oh, 10 days. 10 days? 10 goes into 7.5 miles in the rigors of, a, of the mountains? I don't think so. This could have taken 14 days plus. So as she's traveling with her two daughter laws, operative, not eight. Uh, some point along the way, not the beginning of the journey, three days, four days, five days in, we don't know. We read, and Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, verse eight, go, return each one of you to your mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that your feet, that, that, that you may find rest, each in the house of his husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Why would Naomi send her daughters away? Why would she do this? Now, if you read this with thinking the best of Naomi, Naomi is a godly woman here. She's not eviscerated. She's not the woman of 21, verse 21. She's a godly woman. You would, you, we read this and most the first time that we read it, think this way. She's just being a, a wonderful woman. She's, concerning, she's concerned about their welfare. Notice with me verse 11 through 14. Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a, a husband. If I should have hope, if, if, if I should even have a husband uh, tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait that, that until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's harder for me than uh, for you. The text literally reads, No, my daughters, I am cursed of God. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Four times she references marriage. Why? Why? You go, well, because she cares about him. Brothers and sisters, I start scratching my head, and I, I, maybe you'll scratch your head with me. The only commentary that I've got that views this Naomi in a positive light is Leon Morris and the Tyndale. Every other commentary that I've got are going to tell you what I'm telling you now. You start scratching your head, and you go, Naomi, why'd you wait two or three days on your journey? Why, why wouldn't that be the first consideration? The moment that Malon died, why didn't you say, Ruth, go. Go find a husband amongst your people. She didn't. The moment that Chilean died, why didn't she say, Orpa, go, go find it? She didn't. She's on this journey, and she, there's time that's passed. Seven, verse 8, there's time that's gone on. And what do you do on a journey? Even then, when you're not in a car, what would you do? You think. Naomi's thinking. Okay. Secondly, she raises up marriage four times. The kids didn't. The daughters didn't. The daughters at this time are shocked. Verse 9, they lifted up their voices and, and wept. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 14c, Ruth clung, clung um, on her. They love her. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? When they became married, unlike our world where, you know, marriage is dissolvable so quickly and, and you can leave and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm married, but I live in Boston. My wife lives in California, right? In this day, when you married, that was your family. That became your family. This is family, these women, these two Moab women, are her family. And she's saying, leave. They're not, they don't care about marriage at this point. They care about Naomi. And she's saying, leave. And on top of that, you go, talk about cultural ignorance. Naomi is acting as if Moab were Jerusalem or Judah. Do you know in Judah, if your husband died and you didn't have parents, what would happen to you? You'd be cared for. God made it so. In Moab... Oh, no. You'd probably have to sell yourself as a slave or you go into prostitution. That's how you'd care for yourself. No way would a family, most families in Moab, would not take back an adult mouth to feed. Now, if they were extremely beautiful, which turns out that's what Orpah is, right? Remember we saw that? Her name means stiff-necked, which sounds to me like she's rude, like she's stubborn. Could be. But that is a colloquialism in Hebrew for beauty. Remember Song of Solomon last week? She's a gorgeous woman. So she has a chance. So she opts to go back with her palm, right? The second time she says, okay, I'll go back. Um, but not Ruth, okay? We pick it up in verse uh, 15. Then Naomi took advantage of the fact that Orpah left 
Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her. Her gods, circle that, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Strong statement. Stop it, Naomi. I'm not going back. Why is Naomi so insistent? Brothers and sisters, you got to understand the whole context here. When, El- when Elimelech and Naomi left, they left, what's the text say in verse 21? Full. Remember, we looked at that last time. They're Ephrathites. Ephrathites in Bethlehem were the founding, fa- founding fathers, founding families of the city, which meant they had money, they had land, they had wealth, they had status. And that's why they could leave. I mean, if you didn't have any money, you wouldn't have left Israel to go to Moab. You'd be, you'd be, you'd be meat to be slaughtered, you know, sheep, uh, sheep to be slaughtered. But if you had money, you can go there and you can actually buy and provide for yourself. So they, they left God's people. Now Naomi, 11 years later, is coming back as a shell. And she has to explain to all of her family, all of her friends, all of that city, why she and her husband forsook God's people to live with Moabites, a land cursed of God. That's big. In fact, Therefore, coming back, she's planning, clearly planning, how, is this, how are my people going to receive me? And then she realizes, I've got a liability. You know what that liability, I've got two liabilities here. These two women who are Moabites. Will they accept me? By myself? Sure. But with Moabites? Let me read you a quote from Eric Rimen. Well, actually, before that, notice Ruth 1. They wouldn't accept the Moabites. Notice Ruth 1, 19. Notice verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, and this is significant, they don't say, is this Naomi and her Moabite servant slave? No, they say, is this Naomi? They completely ignore her. Why? Because culturally in Judaism at that point, they were incredibly racist, Right? If you're, if you're not Jewish, you're nothing, right? Notice the quote. But what should Naomi do about the two Moabite daughters-in-law? Truthfully, they could make life harder for Naomi, for they would be additional mouths to feed. They could bring their Moabite idolatry uh, with them. Immediately, people would question Naomi's return with Moabites. Her people might choose not to help her as long as the Moabites were with her. They might not want to spend their, their um, Israelite resources on Moabites when they were um, when there are coveted mouths uh, to feed. So she knows this. So she's saying, get away from me. But Ruth won't leave. Notice why. Why? Verse 16b. Ruth won't leave. For, for this is why. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Your people should be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if, anyone but, if anything but death parts you and me. What does this passage indicate? Do you understand, if you know anything about the Bible, biblical uh, Old Testament, you know Ruth is quoting the covenant promises God gave to Abraham. Jeremiah summarizes it, or it gives the essence of it. You shall be my people, I will be your God. What does Ruth say here? Brothers and sisters, why is Ruth not going to go? Because she's become a Christian. She's become a Jew. She's a follower of Yahweh. And what did Naomi ask Ruth and, and Orpah to, to do? Go back to your family, go back to your gods. You know what that would be like? 
That'd be like me sharing the gospel with some college student. They become a Christian, man. They were made homeless. They had, you know, addiction issues, the whole bit. They become a Christian. They come join us, live with us for 11 years. And then we come on hard times and we say, you know what? We're uh, leaving. Go back to your drugs. That's what Naomi's saying. Go back to your, to your cocaine addictions. Go back to your sin. Go back to your gods. Because I'm going to Jerusalem. Ruth is like, are you nuts? I'm a follower of Yahweh. And I'm devoted to you. I'm going to give my life to serve you and make sure that you are blessed. Incredible. Get back uh, to Naomi. Verse 18. When she, Naomi saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. You know, in the Hebrew, it makes it sound like they dropped the subject. All right, no more talking about marriage. You know, no more talking about grandkids, whatever. Um, nope, that's not what it happened. The text in the Hebrew would read, she, uh, Naomi stopped talking to her. In other words, she clammed up. She's mad. Ruth won't go. Three times I've said, go, go back to your religion. Go back to him. Get out of here. Taking rocks, throwing them out. Get out of here. Ruth won't be deterred. So what does, what does Naomi do? Well, what we typically do when we fight, um, not uh, biblically, we clam up. Naomi clams up. And I've read it a couple times. Um, most likely the, 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 the journey was in silence, the rest of the journey. Because Naomi's angry. I'm not going to do with this woman. I mean, she could go there and say, what, what happened? Oh, it was horrible. My husband brought us to Moab, and it was a horrible experience. He's dead. My kids are dead. I just need help. Oh, come back in, honey. We love you. What do you do about this? Well, wait, wait. Who's this? Oh, she's a servant. Naomi, are you a servant? No, I'm a follower of God. Uh, how'd she get you? I married her son, Malon. What? Inconvenience. Okay. Verse 19. So they both went in relative silence until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about that when they had come to Bethlehem, that all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? That's incredibly significant. Brothers and sisters, Naomi's finally arrived at home, yet she arrived spiritually blind. Verse 19 tells you that. Okay, oh, actually, verse 21. So is this Naomi? They completely ignore Ruth. Notice 21. So she arrives there, but notice she's arrived blind. 21. I went out full. That's wealthy, powerful, standing money, the whole bit. But the Lord has brought me back with nothing. Family of God, who's standing next to her? Nothing. Ruth is Nothing. I went out wealthy, powerful, with influence. I came back with, she can't say, I came back with a slave. I came back with a, a, Moab, a Moabite daughter. Nothing. She came back with nothing. Standing next to her is a woman who married her son, Malon. Standing with, next to her is a woman who became a follower of God. Standing next to her is a woman who vowed unto death to serve her. And she's Nothing. Ian Duguid wrote, if Naomi evaluates her present situation on her return to Bethlehem as having absolutely nothing, what does that make Ruth? Less than nothing? She certainly doesn't rate much higher in Naomi's estimation at this point. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, what happened to Ruth in her rebellion, in her flight away from God's discipline? 
Now, again, was she fleeing from God mentally? No, she was fleeing from a bad situation. She wasn't taken from the hand of the Lord, saying, Lord, what can you teach me here? She fled with her husband. And when that happens, not only does the sweetness of discipline get averted, but secondly, brothers and sisters, you become spiritually blind to the incredible blessings that are with you, that are in your presence this very moment. Who was standing next to Naomi? From the the perspective of eternity, one of the most important people in that day. You realize that? Remember the theme, one of the themes of Ruth is gleaning. Ruth's about going to go out and glean in the fields. God's been gleaning. And over the entire world, he chose Ruth and grabbed her. For an eternal purpose, listen to Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac Jacob, to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And it goes on and on like that till verse 5. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. You You know, we wouldn't know about Naomi, Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, if it wasn't for Ruth. Ruth is at this point the focus of this book, book in terms of God continuing, really Christ is the focus of this book, but Ruth is, 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 is um, essential to that because Ruth is going to be the one by which God continues the line, the messianic line of Jesus Christ. But Naomi, to Naomi, that's nothing. Brothers and sisters, how many Ruths are in your life right now? Because you and I are looking horizontally so worried about, about pain, avoiding pain at any cost. How many Ruths are you and I ignoring? I'm going to close with this. Joni Erickson Tata. I love the, this story. 17 years old, went out on a lake, little tiny uh, floatable you know, uh, platform. She dove off, hit her head on the bottom of the lake, came up paralyzed, neck down. Okay, she, she I, I watched this actually in a movie. It was a, a movie. You say, well, movies, you know, you know exaggerate. Na- uh, Joni starred in the movie. <laughs> she was the main character. So she's in this movie showing her rehab and all that. And during this, during this time, she was familiar with Christianity. She was religious. She went through all this and all she could ask is, why would God do this? At one point in the, the movie, she's laying there. She's paralyzed from the neck down. She, can't, she has no feeling. Her close friend, her best friend came in, and she looked at her and said, please, cut my wrists. It won't hurt. Now, what's amazing is she's acting this, which tells me that's probably exactly what she said. Please, cut my wrists. I want out of this. It won't hurt me. And a friend refused. Do you know what God did to that woman? If you guys know anything about Joni Erickson Tata, God used her um, paralysis to bring the gospel to thousands upon thousands of people. Brothers and sisters, what Ruths are in your life right now that you and I completely ignore, don't even see because we're looking horizontally and not vertically? Moses held in his hand the rod of God. What are you holding your hand, Moses? Just a simply a simple shepherd's hook. 
God said, throw it down, and it became a rod, uh, a snake. Pick it back up, it became that rod. He held in his hand a, a, a visible representation of what God was going to do through him, and that is do miraculous things to deliver his people. Brothers and sisters, what do you hold in your hands? Brothers and sisters, what are your liabilities? Brothers and sisters, what is your Ruth that you and I do not see because we're so frightened of pain? And so frightened of loneliness and so frightened of those dark nights of the soul. Brothers and sisters, this book, if anything, tells the people of God going through the, uh, through the discipline of judges. Family of God, take it from the hand of the Lord. And if you will do that every moment, Lord, this is your call from my life. Take it from the hand of a loving Lord who all he wants to do is get you and me to be satisfied in Jesus Christ alone. May God give us the grace. We'll pick this back up next week um, and finish this passage. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this incredible um, fleshed out um, a, a book which shows us, God, what, what gives us the tree in the midst of the forest of judges. Let's us see individually, personally, what was going on in the life of one Jewish family struggling under the dark days of the judges. And so it gives us so much hope, O oh Lord, because every one of us here represents people struggling under the dark days of this present age. God, I pray you'd give us the grace to take everything you give us is from your hand of a loving God, to not doubt, to not question, but Lord, to know your love and then to seek you like Jacob um, fought, wrestled with you during that dark time of his life, saying, I will not let you go till you bless me, ultimately, Lord, till you give me Christ. God, I pray you'd give us the grace to have such fortitude, even unto the point of injuring ourselves like it did Jacob. God, give us the grace in the midst of the good and the bad to seek you, to seek your face, to, der to derive all satisfaction from you and you alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to the table.